6 through 8, looking at as unfolds the gospel, which, which is the, the demonstration of the righteousness of God on earth. And uh, we have seen how it is the righteousness of God displayed in the truth that brings someone to salvation. And we also see here in Romans 6 through 8 of how the gospel is the righteousness of God as it works out in our life on the other side of knowing Christ as our Savior. We're here in chapter 8 looking at how we are geared for growth in grace through the gospel. And, and we're geared for growth in grace in the present ministry of the eternal God to believers here in chapter 8. And as a part of that chapter 8, if you'll move that forward, Mike. Thanks. As a, as a part of that chapter 8, we're looking at how God's Spirit is our power for living large in these first verses of chapter 8. And we begin uh, chapter 8 right there in verse 1. Where it reads, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Amen. For, now I want you to notice the rest of these verses that we're looking at are explaining that statement. They're explaining how that works out. How is that possible and what it means that we are free from condemnation? And we see that how, how notice in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And picks up in verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now see how it's, it's explaining this idea that we are in a position, if we know Christ as our Savior, of, of there no longer being any condemnation from him against us. And so the following verses unpack along with verse 1 this idea of what it means that we are described as, as we, as we know Christ is our Savior, us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So... I like to think of this as like a, it, it's opening like a telescope, right? Like with the outer section of it being the fact that, that we are free from condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus. But, but it telescopically kind of continues to open up. What, what, what is that made of? What's on the inside of that? What does that mean? And it, and it closes uh, verse 4 with that statement. It might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Just again, kind of give you an overview. The ESV Study Bible says, as Paul immediate go, immediately goes on to explain that there is no condemnation for the Christian because God has condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son to pay the penalty for sin through his death on the cross. The following verses then show that indwelling sin is overcome through the power of the indwelling spirit. With 10 references in verses 4 through 11 to the Holy Spirit. So, so it's unpacking this idea that standing in no condemnation, knowing Christ is our Savior, we're described as those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so our verses this morning further unpack this impact of being free from condemnation and now walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Beginning again with that 
that familiar word, for, explaining. But pick up in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. So, Our title, if you will, for our message this morning is real simple and straightforward. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit gears us for growth. And this is kind of part one of this. And verse nine kind of defines it for us. And we'll get to that. Now, my boys and and used to be my, my girls... Um, they would have toys and things that would, would require batteries. And some of them only get used every so often, right? And, and uh, one of my little peeves is if uh, you put batteries in a toy and it gets used for like a day and then it gets put away and six months later, you'll, you, they get it out and the batteries are dead, right? I, I don't know what little elves come out at night and use that toy in the middle of the night for the next six months to make sure the batteries wear down. But what's worse sometimes is when you go to replace the batteries and you open up the compartment and you find that like all this gray corrosion, you know, in that spot. And you look at your child and you're just like, I don't know if this is going to work at all. I mean, bummer. It's like, you know, yeah, that's how they feel. (laughs) But, you know, it's like life is just... What? Where did that stuff come from? That's like what has happened to all of humanity. And we see it in our country as well. It's not just that morality is losing steam or becoming passe. If you could open up people's hearts and minds, you'd find that they're corroded and corrupted on the inside. We just see our culture just going away, just changing, just just being remolded after something different. You know, I kind of experienced this. It was kind of like a, 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 um, a reminder of this as I was, I was sending out an email on my phone and I was using talk to text this week. And um, it was rega- actually it was to the shepherds and we were kind of talking about the situation in, in Haiti and, and our church and things. And I used the term congregation, talk to text on an email. All right, and wisely so, you know, you always need to check over what did your phone actually get. And if it doesn't, if this doesn't tell you something about our world, it changed the word congregation to Cardassian. Yeah, so that I look at that, and I don't think I slurred or anything when I said it. I think it, it's basically saying that's more of a common word today than congregation. What is needed to change on the inside, to change from this corrupted and corroded place that any of us, before we are redeemed by Christ, is salvation, redemption, a new state of no condemnation between us and God. And what would also take place for a newly redeemed person would be a new source of a new power for living, and that power is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gears us for growth in Christ. That's what's being laid out in these verses for us. And and verse 9 acts kind of like a key verse for interpreting the rest of this section of Scripture. 
And we see in verse 9 that the dividing line between redeemed and unredeemed, set for growth and just set for continual corruption and corrosion of heart, the dividing line is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 9 where he says, speaking to the believers that are reading this letter from him, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We make three observations from this verse real quick. First is that, and you see this in your bulletin there, Christians are not described as in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, I'm talking about in this verse here and talking about verse 9 kind of being a key verse for us as we've kind of referenced up to it in uh, previous weeks here to kind of help us to get an idea of the context of what is being said in these verses. Um, Particularly because there's other places where a believer is, is warned about being in the flesh. Like, say, in Galatians where we're said... Walk by the Spirit or be in the Spirit so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Okay, that's kind of a different context. Here in verse 9, it is describing the redeemed and the unredeemed. And that's what verse, these verses or verse 9 is kind of our key verse for understanding that. So in the Old Testament, flesh would mean not just that, meat that we walk around in or or um, any moral uh, mortal creature would have with them but it would often also refer to our weakness and mortality especially when compared or contrasted with god and his spirit and for instance psalm seventy-eight thirty-nine would say god remembered that they were but flesh a wind that passes and comes not again This describes us in our natural state, our state of being unredeemed, unreconciled to God, unrestored to the relationship with him that we were created to have still in our sin. It also describes our old man or our old nature when we are saved and redeemed, walking in relationship with God, being uh, that old nature can be our natural ruling principle that we can fall back into. So just to get academic here for a second, you know, flesh that's talked about here is uh, the term sarks, which pops up in a lot of different places in the New Testament. But uh, the commentator says, Paul means neither here the soft muscle tissue, which covers our bony skeleton, nor the bodily instincts and appetites, but rather the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed, our fallen egocentric human nature, or more briefly, the sin-dominated self. He's saying to believers, this is not you. Contrasted with that is the spirit. And the term here is pneuma. Some of you uh, guys that are used to working with power tools, I bet you didn't know you realized you knew Greek when you're talking about your pneumatic tool, right? It's air-powered. Comes from the Greek term pneuma, wind or spirit, the spirit. Same commentator says, in this passage, Paul means not the higher aspect of our humanness viewed as spiritual, although verse 16 here, he will refer to the human spirit, but rather the personal Holy Spirit himself, who now not only regenerates, but also indwells the people of God. So when he says, You, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You could paraphrase this as, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Holy Spirit. As believers, Christians are not just where we're told in other passages of the New Testament, you shouldn't be in the flesh. Here he's saying, you are not in the flesh. You are redeemed, you are restored, you are reconciled. And so instead, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and thus in the Spirit. And so the second observation here is to be in the Spirit is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in this passage. If, and, he, and he makes a state, 
statement, this, this condition, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, this is a condition of certainty. It might as well say, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. But he's talking about that setting up camp, that permanent dwelling place, different than what a believer might experience back and forth of being filled by the Spirit or not filled by the Spirit as based on their condition of their, of their walk with the Lord. This is the initial taking up permanent residence of the Holy Spirit in the believer with the effect of, as Ephesians 1 talks about, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of your inheritance. If you recall a quote that I shared from John Stott, he said, thus the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. Do you see how when we talk about being geared for growth in grace, the first primary understanding that we need to come to is that a person that is geared for growth in grace must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's part and parcel. It comes along with, it's a part of the package of coming to know Christ as our Savior. Third observation here is that to not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to not be in Christ. It is to not be saved. This is, this is why in speaking in children's talk, we might share with someone, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Because it's part and parcel with being saved that God himself would take up residence and dwell within us. I want you to notice also how the Trinity in this verse is united in purpose and in essence and in ministry. Notice he talks about uh, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God, which is often referred to the Father, is referred to as God when, when um, other members of the Trinity are discussed as well. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, now this doesn't take away from the Holy Spirit his distinct personality. But it unites in here the entire ministry of the Trinity, the entire intention, the entire essence of the Trinity of God that takes up residence within us. Again, as we would express to a child, You need to ask Jesus into your heart. And we know that comes when a person recognizes simply, I cannot have a relationship with God on my own. Because on my own, I am marked by sin. I am corrupted by sin. I choose sinful things. I think sinful thoughts. And that eliminates me from being able to know the purely righteous and holy God apart from his grace. But Jesus died the death that I deserve. He took the separation from God that I am worthy of. And in him dying my death, I have the opportunity to take his righteousness by simply asking the Father, Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me based on what Jesus has done for me. Again, as we would describe it to a child, asking Jesus into our hearts is opening up our lives for the Holy Spirit himself, for God himself to take up residence within us and indwell us. And what we learn about is how that gears us for growth 
is that the indwelling spirit is what wars against indwelling sin, which is there within us until we are in God's presence and free from this sinful world and this sinful body. So, so if you will, what's kind of being described here is almost like what happens in a boxing match, right? The opponents are not just just um, just opposing each other they are on the mat. They come from opposing corners. They come from opposing sides. The two opponents come from completely different corners, completely different areas. And these are, are also go along with them a different purpose, a different representation. You know, such as in like an Olympic boxing match, they're, they're representing completely different parts of the world. They're maybe getting instructions from their corner in completely different languages from each other with completely different motivations, with completely different strategies, completely different instructions. Their tactics are different. Their motivations are different. When they take a break, they return to opposite locations for rest and refocus back on what makes their efforts unique to them. And we're being told here that followers of Christ are different from the rest of the world for very important reasons. We should come from a different position. No condemnation by God. We should come from different goals from being redeemed. Different than those that are unredeemed. We should receive different instructions than they do. Our motivations should be for a different type of glory. And the, the more we grow in Christ, the more we should see, see our desire be for God's glory rather than ours. So next week we'll work through some of the implications of what verse 9 means here, of what we're observing. For instance, this helps us to understand why simply believing in Christ is not our final proof of salvation. Okay, meaning like, what would you answer on a faith test? Do you believe this or do you believe this? Hey, the demons believe, we're told, and they even shudder. Also, our assurance of salvation is not just about what we did. It's not simply about being able to say, hey, I prayed a prayer, or hey, I was baptized. A major component of our assurance is in, the, in being able to observe the ministry of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So with the difference between the flesh and the Spirit established here, let's back up to the beginning of this explanation of the contrast between those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to that Spirit. And so we see here, first, that our internal condition defines our mindset. Our internal condition of either being in the flesh, unredeemed, or being in the spirit, redeemed, standing in no condemnation before God, that defines our mindset. We're told, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now, by mindset, this is different than like what our brain does, okay? Our mind is like the difference between us and the animals, okay? Animals have brains like we do. We have a mind. We have a will that makes choices. We have a heart that, that desires, we, we, we would describe it as. We, we have hopes. We have dreams. These are all affected by our mindset. These all are different between us and the animals. We have a mind as well as a brain. What mindset we have flows from our nature, notice. If we just have a sinful nature or if we have a redeemed new nature indwelt by the Holy Spirit, unredeemed means basically being having a mindset that flows simply from the old man or from indwelling sin. Being redeemed then means having a mindset that flows from the new man, the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Again, remember, somebody's listening to their Bible. That's a good idea. Again, remember, coming from a different corner of the ring means that boxer is going to follow a different philosophy. Maybe one comes out first round, he's just going to give it everything he has. Empty the tank right there. Maybe the, the other side, the other corner, the philosophy is, hey, hold back until the third round. Then, you know, just, you know, for three rounds, I want you to just uh, aim body blows. Just try to wear him down, okay? And then the third round, you're going to start coming out with your uppercut. You know, uh, think of Rocky. You know, for some reason, Rocky's, uh, his, uh, motive, or his strategy was always absolutely get beat to the pulp for 10 rounds, right? And then muster up some inhuman strength, you know, that's going to put the guy down in five punches, But if you think about how nature defines mindset here, I think of uh, the Olympic diver, David Bediah. I had the opportunity to, to just hear a little bit from the man who was a part of discipling David Bediah. And he shared how in the 2008 Olympics, you might know this story, um, David was devastated, just absolutely devastated by finishing so low in the rankings as a 10-meter diver in the, ten, in the 2008 Olympics. But a large part of this, the foundational reason for this is that at the 2008 Olympics, he did not know Christ as his Savior. And so his mindset was one that was simply of the flesh. And as a part of that, he was looking for definition in what he was going to accomplish at those Olympics. And when he failed to rank as high as he felt like he should, and especially, of course, when he failed to win gold, his very definition as a person was devastated. But understand that his mindset of defining himself by his accomplishments was rooted in the fact that he had no relationship with God through Christ. Fast forward to the 2012 Olympics when he won gold. And he was surprised and he was elated with the results. I think he went in the final round from like ranking 12 to first. And he saw himself as blessed by the opportunity to compete. But, you know, he wrote a book. It's an autobiography. It's entitled Greater Than Gold. And the subheading for it is From Olympic Heartbreak to Ultimate Redemption. And by when he says ultimate redemption, he's not saying because I want, went back and won gold. Because honestly, that gold in 2012 wasn't nearly as important to him as it would have been if he had won it in 2008. But yet he was better off. Because he had found ultimate redemption in accepting Christ as his Savior. And the Holy Spirit indwelled him and it changed his mindset. And in approaching that second Olympics, the gold wasn't nearly as important because it didn't define it. We'll come back to his story. Let me ask you, what defines your mindset? You might say, you know, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I I see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. I, I can I really believe I walk in a relationship with God. But yet honestly, I think if I think about what I'm chasing after day after day or all day long or or where my mind is set on from one given moment to the next, it seems like it's set more on the flesh than on what God is seeking to do in my life or is doing in my life. And this isn't meant to be a litmus test for us to see if we're truly believers or not. But if your relationship with God is solely based on something you did in the past, you should examine yourself. 
solely, I said. If it is solely based on that, your destiny should be affecting your desires, your definition, and your dreams. Also, sometimes we can be affected by our lack of expectation. And I hope these verses are raising your expectation of how you are geared for growth in Christ. If you know him as your savior. If you're not expecting your desires or your definition or your dreams to be different because your destiny is different. You're probably accepting a worldly mindset when you could be living more free and fulfilled in Christ. So moving forward, verse 6 then explains how having the Holy Spirit or not, uh, not only affects our mindset, it also reveals our ultimate condition. We see as this opens up, our internal condition defines our mindset, which reveals our ultimate condition. Verse 6 tells us, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now notice here, it's not saying if you set your mind on your flesh, it's going to change you from being indwelt by the, the Lord and, on, and, and living out eternal life. And now, now you're dead. That's not what it's saying here. It's revealing our ultimate condition. And death in Romans is not just our, the eternal destiny of the person who doesn't know Christ as our Savior. It describes a deadness. A deadness that a person lives in. Ultimate death is death. Notice. The mindset on the flesh is death. It's present tense death. Not just leading to spiritual death. Eternal death. It's unresponsiveness without hope of life in oneself. It's as Ephesians 2.1 says of us before we know Christ as our Savior. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it's further explained by the relational situation with God in verse 7 that we'll see. Without hope of changing God's wrath to forgiveness. So it's an ultimate death. It's a, it's a present situation of, of death. And it's also an eternal death, a destiny, which is simply a continuation of that position of deadness. So for unbelievers, this statement is is saying they may feel at peace with the world, but not at peace with God, but rather dead to him. Just numb. God may be a part of the thinking, but only in a distant orbiting sense. Like, well, he's he's one of those distant orbiting planets around me. You know, he's out there somewhere. That's for unbelievers. For believers, the mindset on the spirit, as he says, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. This life that it's talking about, that's part of the reason why we say, you're called to life. Not just eternal life, not just a destiny of life. We're called to live large life now. Eternal life in the present. It's life. Life positionally. Meaning living in relationship, in connection with God. And life progressively growing in Him. Which we've been geared for. And this is further going to be developed as we'll see next week in verses 10 through 13. Where he says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Notice it's not just life. 
living large now, but also peace with God. It may not feel like peace in general because we're in constant war with fleshly desires. I don't know about you, but knowing Christ as my Savior sometimes feels like I signed up for constant battle, not peace. But it's peace in the most ultimate sense, our ultimate reality. Peace with God. As I mentioned, um, talking with the man who took part in discipling David Bediah, after those 2008 Olympics and him being devastated by now being defined as a loser in his mind, in that mindset according to the flesh, his coach and this counselor eventually led him to the place where he realized, I wasn't created to be a diver. I was created to be a child of God who dives. And in coming to know Christ as his Savior, it set a completely new mindset because he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Receiving Christ, asking Christ into his heart. And by the 2016 Olympics that we just saw him in, on the 10-meter diving, he won bronze. But you know, this man who discipled him, who I had the chance to speak with, he said, you could see the maturity in David. Because not only was he happy to be winning bronze, and it's not just about, okay, lower your expectations. He wasn't looking to it for definition. So it didn't come with this disappointment of, oh, I'm just bronze. But also, he was actually able to be happy for the men who won gold and silver. And he looked at it, and you can tell, even tell in his interviews, after winning bronze, of saying, hey, they dove better than I did. They had great dives. I was so excited for them that they were able to do their best. And that's what was put on to display. And I did my best. And I'm happy with what I did. See, he wasn't looking to a gold medal to inflate him. To inflate who he was. He knew that could only be filled and it was filled by who he was in Christ. And so when the gold medal didn't come... What was inside of him didn't deflate. Because he was still filled with the fact of who he is in Christ. A a bronze medal didn't take that away. As nothing can. Again, I ask you, is the mindset that comes from your relationship with God one of life and peace? Are you even interested in that? Or is it possible that life and peace aren't even on your religious radar? Do you define life by what you get out of your work or what you see your kids accomplishing or or what project you get done at home? Some sense of accomplishment from that? Do you define peace by... Finally having an empty nest or having that joy of being able to bring the grandkids there, spoil them and send them back. Or, or are you, is your antenna up for the peace with God that we have in Christ? Is your mindset in sitting here I'm just adding Christianity to my life to take care of my afterlife. Remember, being a Christian is all of the whole term means little Christ. It starts with being in Christ, which means being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is to change our mindset. And it leads to us at least longing for life and peace with God, which we grow in more and more as we grow in Him. 
If the issue is that you or anyone is not in Christ, the prognosis is not a good one. We see that with the the conclusion of our statement found in verse 7 and 8. Our internal condition defines our mindset, which reveals our ultimate condition, which is irreconcilable for the unbeliever. You see in verse 7, where it kind of focuses in on what it means to be in the flesh, have that mindset on the flesh. Next week, he expands what it means to be in the spirit, to be redeemed. But we see in verses 7 through 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And what I mean by it's that it's irreconcilable. I'm not saying that God cannot reconcile an unbeliever to himself. Obviously, that's what happens relationally when someone comes to know Christ as their Savior. God reconciles himself to us and us to him. But it's, it's irreconcilable for the unbeliever means it's in a position of relational deadness. A place of relational deadness, hostility, unable to submit, cannot submit. I'm sorry, unwilling to submit, cannot submit, cannot please God. Now, I just want to give you a side note here for a second. There's a little bit of a paradigm shift that I think needs to happen. Our tendency of thought, anytime the flesh is talked about in the New Testament and stuff, is to think only in terms of sinful desires uh, for fleshly things like immorality, which is the side of the flesh which is purely licensed to follow sinful desires. Okay, but notice the context here of the person who is in the flesh is that it's the condition of the unredeemed person who is still under God's condemnation. They're unable to please God. In the flesh can describe trying to gain a relationship with God based on trying to obey His moral law. So living in the flesh typically results in either license with sinning or legalism of I'm going to do this in my own strength, in my flesh. Both license and legalism fall into the category of in the flesh and is always contrasted with life in the spirit. We have a tendency to think that the two are in opposite to each other. But just as Paul writes to the Galatians, who in the context of him writing to them, they're leaning toward legalism in the relationship with God. But yet he says to them, don't return to where you came from. They were sinful idolaters before coming to Christ. He lumps both both legalism and license as being a return to the flesh. When they were called in their having a relationship with God to walk, to obey, to live for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the paradigm shift here is that even religiosity falls into this category of being in the flesh. And what we're told summary-wise We cannot please him through legalism. Solely the efforts of our flesh. So verses 7 through 8 here, Paul explains why that striving in unredeemed sinful nature still ends up in death. We're hostile to God in our sinful nature, in our sinful condition. This means cherishing a deep-seated animosity against him. We do not submit to him. It's a present tense. This person is not submitting to God's moral standards. We cannot submit to God's moral standards on this person's end. 
legalism and license both end up picking and choosing what are the big sins to avoid. But remember what chapter 7, where Paul in his personal explanation describes how once that law, do not covet, came in, he was like, I'm done. The law came and I died. Because, yeah, I can sit there and say, yeah, I haven't done this and I haven't done this and I haven't done this. Oh, and don't even wish for it. Legalism's out the window. Striving according to our own flesh to gain a relationship with God by what we do is worthless. And he can, he, the last condition there is that the unable to please God, it doesn't work on God's end either. It doesn't work on our end. It doesn't work on our, his end. So why do people keep living in the flesh, whether that be legalism or license? Makes me think of um, when one of our friends, and this was like a really dangerous situation. We're so glad that nobody was hurt or anything. But she was in the McDonald's drive through line. And she's kind of waiting to get her stuff. It was late at night. All of a sudden, somebody just starts ramming the back of her car. And they're not stopping. They've just got the gas down to the, to the floor. And their t- back tires are just spinning, spinning, spinning. Just trying to push her out of the way. This was down South McDonald's a couple weeks ago. And she's kind of trying to move out of the way and like, well, should I move out of the way or should I keep my car here trying to keep this person from, you know. And the situation was the person behind her was drunk. And he's just thinking, why isn't my car moving? I've got the gas down. Why isn't it moving? No matter the fact that there was a, a, you know, and her kids were with her. I mean, it was a dangerous situation. No matter the fact that here's a car with a family in it in front of them, blocking them. Because the person was inebriated, they're just sitting there thinking, I'm, I, problem, I must just need to press the gas down harder. Here's the fact is, when we are in the flesh, controlled by our sinful nature, unredeemed, without a relationship with God, we just think, I just need to try harder. Because we're drunk with sin. Unable to please God can't even submit to God's law, unwilling to submit to God's law. And it, at our real root and nature, we're hostile toward it. And we really don't even want to be near it. And that's why ultimately, the person will just reason away that he doesn't exist. You know, it's like the Greek gods, their answer was, or the Greeks, their answer, and, and, and so other pantheonic religions, and, and this is man's religion, if he holds on to a semblance of God, he's going to remake him in his own image. Remake him as someone that can be placated, that can be impressed, that can be drawn near. Look at what I'm doing over here. Aren't you impressed? What do you think? Now I'm going to grab hold of you, and I'm going to get you to do what I want. Sometimes we remake God in the, in the image of our own earthly fathers. Frustrated with him. Or thinking he's always frustrated with us. Waiting for his veneer to crack. Surely he'll give in to, to my priorities, to my desires. Surely maybe at some point I can make him happy. Man is still believing that we can be like God. And get to define and recreate, recreate him. Rather than being reborn and allowing him to recreate us. As, uh, Kelly and I were talking about this when she started reading an article on, uh, about Mike Pence. And, you know... Um, and he was talking, the article was referring to his relationship with Christ, where he came to know Christ as his Savior. And at first, she, Kelly was kind of thinking, well, you know, this person's like really mad at him, really like doesn't like things about him. Maybe I should, you know, get a better understanding of their opinion and things. And she shared with me, she said, you know what I realized was everything that they didn't like about him was because of his relationship with God. 
this particular writer. Everything that they hated about him was, oh, he's just goes back to his religion and this just in you know he says that his his relationship with God informs him about all these different issues and things like that and she realized this person just doesn't like the idea of a person having a relationship with God that changes their mindset and changes their life they were just angry about that in general it's sad, I know it's a very sad and unfortunate thing when when our culture came up with the idea of divorce simply based on irreconcilable differences. In other words, we just can't get along. But that idea of irreconcilable differences describes very well God and people who don't know Christ as their Savior. The relationship is irreconcilable outside of God doing a work of grace. And it should lead us to a gratefulness for God's gracious work in our salvation, as we'll see more so in chapter 8. And all of us who are now walking with God through Christ with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we're irreconcilably lost in our own power. until he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's refer back to Ephesians 2 again for a close. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, this is true of us if we know Christ as our Savior, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Father God, thank you for our relationship with you. In accepting Christ as our Savior, you have uncorked everything that we need for growth in that grace. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that indwells us. I pray, Lord God, that this passage would elevate our expectations of what it means to walk in relationship with you, anticipating the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that you would reveal and convict us of a mindset set on the flesh that needs not be that way if we know Christ as our Savior, and that you would set us free from such a small, small view of what it means to be free and fulfilled. And I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.